Tonight, when you watch the local news here in Seattle, you'll see a woman sitting in the anchor chair. But 50 years ago, that was unheard of. Until Jean Ennerson became the first female local news anchor in the country. Late last month, after a 50-year career, Jean Ennerson retired from King 5. But in the late 60s, when she first joined the station, the newsroom was a very different place for women. Jean Ennerson told Lisa Brooks that it was kind of an old boys club at King 5 back then. I I think one of the things I remember most vividly is the news director. He hauled me into his office and said, here, drink this, and pulled out a bottle of whiskey. And he said, and you should smoke these, and threw a pack of cigarettes on the table. And he said, this will all make your voice better. Well, I didn't, so I have the same voice now that I had then. (laughs) But um, there, there were examples like that. Photographers who really didn't want to work with a female so they wouldn't get out of the car. And you just sort of play it by ear and cajole and say, well... Barney, wouldn't that be a better story if we got out of the car and shot the grain terminal at the Port of Seattle closer to it? Wouldn't that make a better story for both of us? And a photographer who wanted to go look at girls instead of shoot stories. And I said, well, okay, how about if we shoot the story first? And if we have any time on the back, then we'll go look at girls. I mean, you just sort of figure out what's going to work for everybody. Well, what was it like? Were you nervous? Were you apprehensive being the first woman doing this? Because I don't think there was another woman doing local news anywhere in the country. Well, not anchoring is what I'm told. Uh, Was I nervous? Sure. I mean, I, even to this day, get a little bit nervous because I think you're up then. You're, You're excited for what you're doing. I was actually hired to work for a documentary production company, which is my background, politics and documentary production. And about a week after I got to King, that documentary film unit closed. So here I am with all I had from college which or graduate school, books and boards and bricks and, I mean, what, what do kids have? And um, nowhere to go. So kind of hung around the newsroom and said, now, now, now. And, you know, it took me a couple of tries to get hired again. And then it was sort of off and running. And just, you know, keep your head down and keep your ears open and put one foot in front of the other. And then 48 years go by. <laughs> really? What, <laughs> what do you think it was about you that they that you ended up in the anchor chair? I really don't know. Um, drive, curiosity, um, a willingness to try it. There was an anchor man named Jim Harriet, who was the, the sole anchor at the time that I had applied. And Jim was the most gracious, the most helpful, a big, tall, strong man, uh, still has family in this community. And I'm I'm grateful to his whole family for being so supportive. Jim moved over, made room for me. Um, I listened to his voice, which was really great. I couldn't replicate the voice. I looked at how he dressed, which was sometimes polyester suits. And I, I couldn't do that on a regular basis. But he just advised and supported and made room for me, and we became terrific friends. And, and I just feel very lucky that that Jim was gracious, and he was such a great anchor man. And, you know, I've, I've always had really, really wonderful partners, the most recent of whom is Dennis Bounds. And Dennis and I shared an office for 25 years, raised our children together by talking to them on the phone and talking to each other about thrills and frustrations and all of raising kids. And I, I couldn't ask for a more gentlemanly, enjoyable, dutiful partner than Dennis. I just feel so fortunate. Tallest man in television, too, I believe. Well, especially when he's wearing his cowboy boots. (laughs)
You know, uh, King was founded, as you know, by Dorothy Bullitt, uh, and uh, she is a Seattle radio and television pioneer. She was frequently in the station even after she retired, I understand. How did she influence you in your career? I suspect uh, in ways that I didn't know at the time that she was just very supportive. And um, if I did something wrong, she would haul me into her office, although um, she wasn't in the building as often. She had an office down the street. She was very much present in our lives, and we would get handwritten notes from her, uh, do this differently. Um, Or one time she hauled me into her office when I was doing a talk show before I started anchoring, and she said, you know, we're in business because we have commercial sponsors, and we're not in the business of offending our commercial sponsors. So uh, this woman who, who started this broadcast um, organization, which is legendary for its public service, um, was in business because she was a businesswoman. She was a very, very smart woman. And we all learned from her. And we all benefited from her tutelage, her mentoring. And I think that she was particularly supportive of young people recently out of college who didn't um, necessarily have a background in television, but had an interest in learning how best to use it. It sounds a lot like what public radio is all about now. Well, we've always partnered with um, KUOW and KCTS, and we've had a, a good relationship because I think to some extent your listeners um, and our viewers and our web followers are of similar interests. So it's always been a very supportive relationship that um, our organizations have had. I hear you saying the word hour, and all of a sudden... You're not going to be an hour anymore. You're going to be Jean, and King is going to be over there. Well, that's such an interesting observation, Lisa. It's true, um, but I will always have a very strong, fond feeling for King and for its endeavors, and it's um, a lot of things that I do in the future will be things I started while I was working at King. For example, I mean, I retired last Friday, and an hour later I went to Northwest Harvest to host a panel about hunger in Seattle. And these are partnerships that I intend to keep up because I live here. Um, I care very much about our community, and I intend to be very involved in the community. I mean, King may call it a retirement, but I prefer to look at it as a redirection that I will write, I will report, I will—now I can advocate— I can say the things that I feel strongly about that before I felt I couldn't really editorialize about. I know um, the Odessa Brown Center is is near and dear to your heart as well. very much so. Seattle Children's has a clinic in the central area called Odessa Brown, and it provides exceptionally high-quality care for low-income patients or families, uh, people who can't afford to pay. It's a primary care facility. And my interest in children's is definitely children and family health, community health. That's the umbrella. My interest in Odessa Brown is it's medical, dental, nutritional, as well as a full service for the children and the families who are served by this community center. And it will expand. It will have a bigger reach into the community. And it will go farther upstream to find out why so many of our children in this community are getting diabetes or asthma or have problems with obesity. And some of these problems are certainly poverty-related. Some of these problems are definitely hunger and nutrition-related. So how can we go upstream and get a bigger solution for these problems, which will be a solution for all of us in this community? You've seen Seattle change an awful lot in, in your years of reporting and anchoring. 
What do you think are the most important issues facing the city of Seattle and the community that you have served for so long? People talk about the soul of Seattle. You know, are we losing the soul of Seattle? And billionaires are developing South Lake Union and Soto, and real estate purchases are changing and changing the face of the community. There are big community problems we haven't solved, transportation being one of them. Healthcare being another. I mean, one in five kids in this community is hungry, and that's that's a problem for the whole community. Um, in terms of, it, you know, it's a moral imperative. It's a safety and health issue. There will always be some poverty. There will always be challenges medically, politically. But some of the things we have the know-how to address, we have the technology to address, and we have innovative entrepreneurial people here who can help address these problems. So I see the city changing, but I'm hopeful about some of the changes. I mean, we've always been a left coast city. We've always been fairly progressive. The SEIU union, for example, now had precursors with the Wobblies in the you know early part of this century. We've always had a progressive element in our political system, and we still do. We have always uh, been the community that doesn't surprise us by being the first to support equality in marriage, um, fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. I mean, we are leaders in so many ways. And I think in these ways, the rest of the country looks to us to see how we're doing. And you're t- we're talking about the city changing in politics. What about the media in Seattle and how Seattle media has changed since you've been anchoring and since you've been covering news? The changes are not just in Seattle media. The changes are in technology worldwide. I mean, we didn't have the Internet, and it's such a force in how people get their information now. And I think a lot of the changes we see, for example, in television, um, the information in the future will be, as it is now, disseminated over all glass screens, not just a television screen, but your mobile phone, your iPad, your PC, your, your Mac, whatever you're using. People are getting information on the run. They're not waiting for appointment television at 5 o'clock, and we're adjusting to that. Um, some, of, some of the changes that, that we see are happening all over the world. And Some of it is very beneficial. We can get news instantly. We can learn about Tiananmen Square or all the things that are going on in the Middle East right away because there are sources right in the middle of whatever the scrum is telling us about it on a blog, on Twitter, on Facebook. And you were mentioning Tiananmen Square. Let's let's go back to China for just a moment because you were the first um, local TV reporter, among the first local TV reporters that was allowed into China after the U.S. and China established diplomatic relations. Um, I think you went in 1979. Right. Why did they send you? <laughs> well, Mrs. Bullitt, the founder of our company, was always very locally involved but very globally interested. And she sent us to China at this really important period in the Northwest development because she recognized China was going to be a huge part of our future. Now, remember, this is back in 1979, and the Cultural Revolution had happened. China was suddenly opening its doors to the West. It had been closed for decades, and we had an opportunity to go in with the first American flagship um, and the first U.S. airplane that was going into Beijing and into Shanghai. And we went to cover these events. But our charge given to us by her was go to China and find the truth about what? You know, that's that's what I said about what. And so we looked at um, life 
in uh, the hutongs. We looked at life on the farms. We looked at urban life. We, I mean, we, we looked at all the things that were observable. But so much in China at the time was not. So much now is not. But we got a slice of China then, we would say now, looked quite backward compared to us. And in 40 years, you see that China is a trade partner. China is uh, what some would call an adversary. But China is very important to our future here in the Northwest. Very important. And, of course, it's important to uh, the entire country politically. But, w- but we're in a key position. So what did she send us for? Uh, I think she just knew it was important in our future. Mm-hmm. And it is. It's very important. I mean, I think we have a different viewpoint on the West Coast than per- perhaps other areas of the country do. We're a very trade-dependent part of the world, um, especially part of this country. And we have, as you look at the presidential race unfold, we have a different, many of us have a different view here than, say, the Midwest uh, or even the East Coast, which tends sometimes to look more towards Europe. And I think the West Coast tends sometimes to look more towards Asia. Do you remember what any of the specific stories were when you that you told from China that you particularly connected with, that you really enjoyed? Oh, we went to a very small town where I don't think the residents had seen people with blonde hair and white skin, and they were clearly scared. And uh, just the reaction that we would get, people were very friendly, extremely friendly, but some were frightened because... Um, they had been told we're the white devil and what, I mean, what to expect. So now you think about all that we see um, in pictures that travel around the world instantaneously and we know so much about each other and we relate so closely to each other now that the time is so different. We covered the first flagship coming into Shanghai. I remember this vividly because as soon as the agreement between the U.S. and China was signed, and it was hard because they didn't have contract law, we do, that we asked who will sign the contract, and they said, well, the people of China will sign the contract. That's different from our perception of contract law. But as soon as we figured the contract out, they brought in the nearest ship to Shanghai, which was a small cargo ship with 12 retirees on board who were having a travel adventure on this cargo ship. Well, they had the adventure of their life when the ship pulled into the Bund in Shanghai, and a thousand kids in Mao suits with little pink scarves greeted them with um, a band and banners and all. We welcomed the first uh, U.S. ship into Shanghai, and these 12 um, elderly travelers, adventurers, got off this small cargo ship, and this is what they saw. Can you imagine? No. Oh, my goodness. And uh, it was the same... A period of time when the U.S. brought in the first airplane from here to China. And it was, if you all remember Pan American Airlines, it was a Pan American plane that came into Beijing. And it was welcomed because our languages are different, not as a Pan American clipper ship, as it was then called in English. Mm -hmm. It was welcomed with a banner that said, we welcome the first Pan American scissor ship. (laughs) So there were challenges. There were hurdles. There were a different understandings that we, we now have a better sense of. But I remember some of the things we covered so vividly as if it were yesterday. Oh, do you have any other places that you went that, were, that stand out in your mind? Did you go to Russia? Certainly Russia. Um, when uh, Seattle was particularly sensitive to being a target, 
if there were a, a nuclear outbreak. There was something going on in Seattle called Target Seattle, where people got together to decide whether we felt threatened because we have military bases and def a lot of defense installations, um, Fort Lewis, McCord, Boeing, etc., or whether we felt safer because of that, and what kind of a relationship we should have uh, with the then Soviet Union, given the nuclear threat. And King participated actively in this community's event called Target Seattle. But as a station, we also put on what we called sky bridges, which were satellite link-ups with people in Seattle linked to people in Moscow talking back and forth live. And it was teachers and teachers. It was students and students. It was parents and parents. And the very clear conclusion that viewers of these space bridges would get or that the people seem to get along fine. The government is a different situation. And this is, you know, in the era when Reagan would say, trust but verify. And I think that um, we, our aim was to show that people had the same desires for their families. They wanted them to be safe. They wanted their children to have a future. And how do we get to that point where the then Soviet Union and the United States felt comfortable at least dealing with each other in a humane and civil and safe manner. And we don't do that now because of the Internet. The Internet seems to be doing the same sort of thing, but there's a dark side to it as well. Do you think that we're missing out, that we're not doing these same kinds of bridges with, with nations through the broadcast medium? I, I certainly, there's, there are many times when I wish we could do the same thing uh, with people in Syria, with people in Egypt, uh, that... I think most humans have the same desire. They want the best for their families. They want a safe um, future. And I feel that people-to-people -people programs, I mean that in a generic sense, are very strong in showing us other cultures, helping us understand other cultures, other people, just to understand so that at least we don't start out with fear. We start out with a, an open mind and a willingness to try and understand other languages, other cultures, other people. I'd like to take it back into the, the anchor studio mm -hmm. where the chair where you sat for so mm -hmm. many years with wonderful co-anchors and introducing live shot after live shot and produced piece after produced piece. What sticks, what do you think you take with you from that studio? What will stick in your mind as the most significant breaking news events and also maybe some of the craziest, most funny moments that you had to fight to keep a straight face? Well, <laughs> there were certainly mispronunciations, which I can't probably repeat over um, <laughs> the airwaves. It was bad enough I said them the first time, <laughs> but we all do that. Um, some of the most significant events, I mean, for sure, Oso was one of them. I wasn't really in the studio all the time. I was at Oso, and I, I was really heartbroken along with the people of, of Oso because 43 souls were lost. Parents were looking for newborns, for infants, and we, I mean, to some extent felt powerless against the forces of nature, which was a giant mudslide caused by perhaps by building, perhaps by deforestation, perhaps by excessive rain up on the coast um, or the west side of the mountains. Um, but we also engage in a significant effort to help the community rebuild and to at least get through this very, very hard time. It was a hard time for everybody. And I, I remember that 
most vividly, not because I was in the studio, but because I was there with people day after day and feeling the heartbreak right along with them. I also remember vividly WTO at the time. I thought, people are tearing our city apart. And some years later now, I realize this is the beginning of a very serious protest against the dislocation that some trade packs um, create for some people and the importance of job retraining, the importance of of economic restructuring so that uh, people aren't completely dislocated, that they feel a part of the community, they feel a part of the economy, uh, that the trade agreements that we have don't have a negative consequence for everyone, but a positive consequence for our economy and for our population. It was a real precursor for what we're hearing debated in the in the elections today. Are you going to stay in touch with your colleagues? Do you oh, absolutely. Yeah. We're all very, very good friends, and we spent a lot of a lot of dinner hours together, and a lot of dinner hours with you, with our our viewers and and your listeners. One of the things that I, I really want to impart is a tremendous gratitude I have for listeners and for viewers because it is a partnership. And I, I feel very much um, attached to people in the community, to organizations in the community, and grateful for their support and grateful for the partnership and grateful that the things we can do together uh, in our community. I mean, no, there are very few solo flights. Most of the great things that are done are done with coalitions of people, with, with groups of people, pulling together. Gene Anderson retired from King 5 late last month after 50 years at the station. She was the first female local TV news anchor in the country. Gene Anderson spoke with KUOW's Lisa Brooks.